So market research is just getting intel from consumers, customers, and using that data to essentially uh, inform good business decisions. That's what market research is. Hello and welcome to Best in Fest. And I'm Leslie Lapage, the director of the Lafemme International Film Festival. And this is a podcast for people who are interested in advancing their career in television and film and learning all the dirty little secrets of Hollywood. Today, I am very pleased to have a guest, um, Kevin Getz, who is frankly really savvy, very smart. Um, Uber connected, and he's the founder and CEO of Screen Engine ASI, which is a global leader in entertainment research and content testing, uh, really servicing the majority of film and television and streaming studios worldwide. Um, he also is an author. Uh, Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love, um, which is his book. And he has his own podcast, Don't Kill the Messenger, with movie research expert Kevin Getz. But also, he is a producer. He's produced uh, 12 television uh, movies, really ranging um, from all different genres. He has... Um, really uh, changed the landscape of um, research and market research. We're going to talk about all of this. Kevin, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> wow. In 45 minutes. <laughs> in 45 We're going to cover we're the landscape in 45 minutes. <laughs> okay, so when you were a little kid, I know you didn't go, hey, I want to grow up to do market research. So... <laughs> What, what what did you and how did you get into this wonky world of entertainment that then kind of branched you off into what you're doing now? Well, I always was uh, a, a showbiz kid. I was born for the business. And I didn't think the path to your point would be marketing or market research. I would have probably slit my wrists at that point in time if I had known that because uh, it seems so boring. I wanted to be a movie star or a Broadway star or both, an EGOT, I guess, mo mo many times over. Uh, but I loved the craft of it and I was a child actor. I started pretty early as a performer. It was, again, something that was in my DNA. I, 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 was, an, I was an artist and I knew it and I was a pretty damn good one. I, I, I think I was um, a strong singer, a dancer, and an actor. And in fact, went to acting uh, a conservatory when I went to college at Rutgers at Mason Grove School of the Arts, which is one of the leading acting schools in the country. And I was thrilled to have gone there and study with William Esper and Catherine Gately, the Meisner technique, which was based on Sanford Meisner's uh, wonderful work that originated out of the group theater in the in the 30s, and so it was a privilege and an and an honor to work with such great people. Because I didn't really want to go to um, I didn't really want to go to college. I wanted to go right to Broadway, and uh, I was persuaded by a mentor of mine, my high school drama teacher, Elliot Tobinslag, who said to me, who had a theater in New York, and he's like, "You need to go to school 
yeah, and, and I don't know if he was in cahoots with my parents, but in any event, uh, I did, and it changed my life because it, in a way, legitimized me as an artist. It, you know, they don't give you talent. They, they hone the talent and they, they hone the craft of, of, of acting. And, and that's what I was tunnel vision. That, that was it. That was it. That was what I was going to do since I was a little boy all the way into and beyond college. I was already working professional. So I entered college with being in the three acting unions, you know, Actors Equity and SAG. And after I had done a ton of television commercials and at 17, I started my own business, a dance and acting studio in my hometown of East Brunswick, New Jersey. And that was, again, something that uh, I was, for whatever reason, uh, aware enough to recognize that I had this business acumen and was able to put that to work at such a young age. And ultimately, I had uh, about four teachers and 100 students and and uh, and it was just um, helped me get through school, you know, and I had it for about five years. Well, I, I feel your pain about being the EGOT. You know, I understand. I, I did the whole Broadway dancing, singing, acting thing. Um, so I, I, I have that passion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you didn't stop there because you jumped from that. You leapt, I should say, um, in a in a grand plié to um, really working a lot of the business and and having that understanding of marketing. So and producing. So you you delved into producing. Now I'm a little unsure, like what was first, the chicken or the egg? And but you'll have well, to explain that. All, a, 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 it was a grand jeté, not a plié, <laughs> because I left. <laughs> it was a jeté. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, at first. Uh, I got a contract in California to um, work at a theater, and it was a, a like a five month contract for shows or three shows, I forgot what it was, back in 1986. And that was, I viewed my ticket to California. Now, granted, it was three, three and a half hours away from California, but I managed after the contract was up to get a car and drive to LA. And it was exciting and terrifying. I remember the tears and I remember the screams of joy when I saw the studios, Universal there, you know. And uh, I, because I, I was doing theater, kind of my residuals sort of ran out and I, I needed to work. So I had a series of survival jobs, catering and uh, selling typewriter ribbons for about three days that couldn't bear that. And um, all sorts of, all sorts of things. And then I got this little part-time job at a company that did screenings. And I'm like, what is that? And a girlfriend of mine worked there and what they did is they tested unreleased movies and you would go and help check the audience in who were going to be exposed to a movie and hand out questionnaires at the end of the movie and then help count the questionnaires after the movie and go home. And sometimes if you were lucky, you got to watch the movie too. And I went to my very first screening in 1980, early 1987 and I stayed for 16 years uh, working my way up as a focus group moderator, because the thing is I could do that and be a hyphen. I could also act. Then I realized I wanted to control my destiny. I wanted to not walk into a room 
and feel as though I was giving it all over, giving it all up to a producer or director who was going to seal my fate. You know, you got the job. You didn't get the job, essentially. So I said, I want to I wanna be in control. So I, I started my own theater, Central Coast Repertory Theater. And, you know, I believe that life presents us with reasons, seasons, and lifetimes. And in this particular case, when I was at that first theater, I met the owner of the theater who became my a mentor of mine and taught me the ropes of producing theater. And we opened the theater together um, in San Luis Obispo. And it was a, a master's degree, PhD in producing. And I got to play a lot of roles that I chose for myself, essentially, uh, responsibly, not, not out of the realm of I did Tom and Glass Menagerie and I did, um, I did, uh, you know, something called the eye of the beholder which i played an artist so there were things that i knew that i wasn't you know going to uh i knew that were we learned enough in school to 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 work within your temperament at the time you're ready to play that you know as you know yeah you were working within your casting exactly not not choosing things that were way out of the realm and, and then it got really really hard to do both to produce and be the artistic director of the theater, but also to act because I am a perfectionist and even I have a limit of how much I can push myself. And I decided to just produce. Um, and I was there for doing that for about three more years and realized that it was my dream, essentially, and Annette's my partner, but that I didn't have this group of people in the wings that were going to sort of bring me forward and fundraise for me. It was my vision bringing everyone else forward. And I kind of said, why am I not combining my focus group connections in LA with my theater, you know, producing skills now and produce movies. So I decided to leave the theater and focus on producing uh, Hollywood fair. And that is how I began working, producing movies. Again, a hyphenate focus group moderator. First it was actor and focus group moderator. Then it was actor, theater producer, focus group moderator. And then it was actor, uh, television, film producer, and focus group moderator. I say this because I did about five movies that took me about five years to do. And it, it, the first one took five, uh, five years. I made them, I made five movies in like three years, but it took five years to get the first one made. So I guess that would be eight years or something. So in that time, that was when, um, at the end of that time of those uh, five movies, I was tired and as a television producer, you're starting over each and every time, essentially, right? Unless you have like a deal somewhere at that time, they did, people did have deals, harder to get now, but it was basically getting a script, starting from scratch. And then when you went off on set, your development was taking, um, you know, a, uh, a bit of a, a second, second fiddle, right? So, or second, second, uh, you know, second seat. Exactly. So, I saw my lawyer uh, at the time, Christine, and I said, you know, I think I want to 
do some, I think I want to do something single focused for the first time in my life. Hyphenate is hard. And I decided to leave NRG and explore what might be out there. I made all of two phone calls and got two offers because as a focus group moderator at that point, 16 years in, I was the most requested guy to do the work and everyone wanted that. And they knew that that, that skill set was not something you could just hire for. You have to earn it, right? The trust of working on at that point, maybe seven or eight of Ron Howard's movies or name your filmmaker, James Cameron or whatever. And so they're now requesting me. So now they knew that I could potentially start a division. What they didn't know and underestimated was my business ability. And so I did, I did it. I jumped and to a company called OTX and became executive vice president starting this film division. Now there was a little bit of a film division already in place, but they were only a two year old company. So I took it to a whole new level and started the screenings division and then expanded the motion picture group. And I was able to, uh, to, 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 for the first time in my life, put full focus and get a check every two weeks, which I have to tell you, doesn't suck. It doesn't. It sure doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't suck to get a check every two weeks. And I never did. I had residual checks and I, I moderated and pay. Actually, towards the end of my NRG career, I did get like a retainer. So I was better, I was better off, but uh, but then I would, you know, if I booked a commercial, I remember booking Wrangler jeans. Uh, I was a, this, this, it was like a city slickers campaign. It was a pay or play three year deal, which really changed my life because I made enough money to save for my first, um, for my first condo. Uh, I was able to um, travel. I was able to have no debt. And it was a really cool thing. And I liked the way that felt. I liked, I liked that. I haven't really thought about that too much, but that was um, kind of the impetus in a way. And then at OTX, I was there for seven plus years and built a practice that in an, in an area that NRG, the former company I was with, cre controlled 90% of the market. Uh, I took about half of the market uh, away when I went to OTX, which had never been done in their history. And then that was mostly doing test screenings, but also advertising, testing, and tracking, tracking how movies are gonna open before they opened. And then uh, about seven years in, and I, and I think I made an additional three movies in that time uh, as a, I just can't help myself, even though I wasn't, a, it was an advocate, it wasn't a vocation, it was an avocation, it was a hobby. It was a hobby, uh, lifetime thrillers. Um, but we did win an Emmy. I won an Emmy. That was right. That was, well, Laura Linney won Best Actress for the movie that I produced, and we were nominated for two others. But that was a, a, a signal to me that, yeah, it was because it was like, I realized the quality of the stuff that I was going to sort of put my energy in was going to, you know, was going to up uh, the game a little bit. And uh, But still in all, I didn't want that. I didn't want that lifestyle. I wanted to be the best at something. That's another reason for the decision. You know, it's very, very difficult to, in our business, to, to just to lay a stake in anything. 
but to try to lay a stake and say, I want to own this area of the business. I want to be that, that expert. Um, and, 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 and that's why I also probably chose to do what I, what I did. And I found a lot of creativity, um, in what I was doing. So I was able to feel satisfied both creatively and from a business standpoint by doing the, the, the job I did at OTX. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I talk about in audienceology in my book, I talk about this notion of finding one's and, A-N-D. And if you set out like you did, Leslie, for example, to perform and you really are good at organizing and, and, and bringing the right people together and suddenly you're, you have your own film festival of 19 years, uh, La Femme, suddenly now you are using your and because you didn't just get there doing the one thing, you used your skill set. And so I talk about embracing that, really embracing it, understanding it, living it, and that's what I did. And um, so I felt really kind of satisfied by it and I started to get really good at it and made even more money at it. So in seven years later, when they wanted to sell that company, I left and I started my own company. And that was a very, you know, big move for me because in some ways, Leslie, it was a big move and yet it wasn't a big move. In other words, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was scary and I'm sure it was new, but it wasn't foreign. That is correct. But I have to say that I was equal parts terrified and excited. And, and I talk about that again in the book, but I will say also that I was sued when I left and they tried to slow me down. Uh, through some very uh, intense litigation, lasted for about two years. And, well, you know, I don't know, maybe I would do the same thing if I were in their position, but I would, because the business, they have no business, that business closed only a couple of years later, that area of business, but they were in the middle of a sale and, and I, I, I just never felt like I was heard and, and, uh, and I, and, or had a, a choice uh, to, to, or to what end I was going to participate until it was too late. And once I make my mind up, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And I feel guts. So imagine though, the added to the terror was of course, a lawsuit looming over your head, but you know, people were rooting for me. I was the underdog and they were $2 billion companies sort of coming at me, um, that were going after the little guy. Now, if you know me and I bet you, get me already, Leslie, is if you dangle a carrot in front of me, I'm going to go how high. And so rather than slowing me down, it actually had the adverse effect. It fueled me. It fueled me. Exactly. It fueled me. It sped me up. It motivated me. And I had a lawyer who was my partner at the time who um, basically handled all that stuff for me. So I was not really involved in you know, I was just you weren't, you weren't bogged down by the craziness. No, in fact, to the contrary, I actually went the other direction and said, I'm just going to build the business, make money to pay for this thing. We paid it as we went because it was a very expensive uh, proposition. And I don't encourage anyone to go into litigation if it can be avoided. But this didn't seem like it could be. And um, 
And I felt very passionate that I did, I was absolutely in my complete legal rights. I had no contract and I felt really confident that I was gonna, I was gonna prevail. But nonetheless, you're still a new business owner. Uh, you're, you're building this, you're growing it, etc. Cut to uh, three, four years later, I bought my first company. I bought ASI, which was a television company. So now it was immediately thrust not only in film, but in television. And then since then, uh, I brought on an investor a few years later who bought half of my company. And we were then able to make several acquisitions. My most recent one just closed about a month ago. Right. And I want to, I want to hear about that, but I want to delve a little bit more into the uniqueness of what you do. Cause a lot of, um, filmmakers, uh, independent filmmakers don't understand what market research is and what's the purpose of market research. You know, studios have been using them forever, right? I go back to a friend of mine that did La Lorena and, you know, they test marketed that film with like a 97 percentile, which was like crazy numbers. And you look at their budget was 10 million and they did buku amounts of money box office. So everyone was happy. Right. But what is market research? How can the independent apply market research to their films, guiding them to films that will be more successful or have a percentage of, of, of success more so than just I'm making my passion film about my dysfunctional family <laughs> film. So, so market research is just getting Intel from consumers, customers, and using that data to essentially uh, inform good business decisions. That's what market research is. I don't consider myself in market research. It still has a nagging kind of, it doesn't feel right to me. I feel like I am in the movie business. I feel like I'm in the television business, in the streaming business. You know, that's what I, that's where I um, always take issue with that terminology because it has a very dry, connotation. And what I do is really part of the, and has become more so a part of the actual process of making content, of making a movie, of making a television series, of making a limited series, whatever it may be. And essentially there are three parts of the movie research process that has existed since, I guess, the late seventies when the big tentpole was born with Jaws and Star Wars. And that is screenings, which have existed since movies began with Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, etc. I'll explain that. Ad testing and tracking. So tracking is four or five weeks before a movie opens. How essentially is it going to open? You're measuring the awareness, both unaided and aided awareness. You're measuring the interest, intent, how are you definitely interested or someone interested? And then the urgency in choice. Is it your number one choice? Is it second choice, et cetera? That through those measurements, there's uh, estimates that are built. So you can then measure through the flight of your media campaign, just how well you're doing or not. And so you can make adjustments throughout. So it's a, it has a very practical reason to exist. But as the movie, movie, um, 
business has changed so dramatically, particularly since COVID, uh, that formula has taken on a different kind of, um, of, of meaning. And, and when I, what I mean to say is that pre-green light is also very much a part of market research and the movie business. And you do something that is highly, highly fascinating and and really valuable and 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 unique in in how you're facilitating it. Can we can we talk about that? The pre uh, capability testing. Yeah, we call it capability testing because it is measuring the capability. It is measuring how capable you might be, how what the potentiality is for a particular movie or television show or whatever you're testing. It's an early DNA measurement, essentially. What it is is trying to get at the heart of interest based on a concept, based on an idea, based on the elements that you already have. Dare I say the casting as well, because you can measure if a cast member has a material change or not. And from that, you can extrapolate at least, you know, a fair enough sense of does this make sense to green light? Is there an, a large enough audience for this? Now, I want to, before I even go on, I just want to say to all of your independent filmmakers, and I imagine that makes up a majority of your of your they may think that this is like what we can't afford this we can't do this how how is this possible yeah. whether or not you can afford screen engine asi is another story but you should absolutely be listening to this as an important part of your of your process because information is just information right and you want to get as much of it as you possibly can it's always helpful to be have information that's i, I get crazy when i hear people say well, why am I doing, I'm like, what are you afraid of? You know, you, listen, you, can, you don't have to use it, but just listen. But, uh, but in terms of uh, understanding that sort of early process, um, consider that this statement, and it is a bold statement, but I truly believe it. Every movie, if made and marketed for the right price, should make money. Yes, absolutely, 100%. Most people lose money in movies because of the pre-green light stage. They don't understand what they have, the probable platform, the probable size of the audience who are going to embrace it. And as a result, they make it for too much money time and time again. Now, every now and then, one of the movies gets through because the execution is so good that it, it makes its way through. But essentially, but essentially, it's an exception. It's an exception to the rule. In market research, we don't work in outliers. We work in more of the generality, right? In how do most things perform? You're, you're always looking at medians and norms and, and, um, averages and so when you have outliers you usually kick them out but for every movie that does do well uh, everything everywhere all at once there's 200 of them on the sidelines who haven't made a dime or or who can't even get just distribution I mean Sundance this year was kind of a bloodbath in not getting 
sales. Uh, I used to have a slide when I produced, uh, and it was, and then I taught at the uh, film schools uh, a course in this, and it would be like uh, Sundance versus Vegas. And I made a point of how Vegas, the odds of Vegas were better getting a movie, have a theatrical release from Sundance. And uh, so in, in no way is that meant to, to discourage anyone. It's meant to wake everyone up and say, make any movie you want. Every story is worthy. And it could be a really lousy story. It does have an audience. I assure you, I can find an audience for the most uh, darkest, craziest, most aberrant behavior that you can think of, uh, that there'll be somebody who likes it. Now, it may be that it's only one fetish site that will buy your movie. But again, shame on you if you don't know in advance that that fetish website will only pay $15,000 in perpetuity for all rights. And you make the movie for 16000 and expect to make money because there's one buyer for it. And there's one audience. Yeah, you can go on a risk, you can risk distributing yourself, but that is more expensive and blah, blah, blah. So I'm just saying that is a big extreme example. But if most people don't do their homework, they don't know who are the buyers? And this is a conversation. And this is a conversation I have with independents all the time. They don't do their homework. A majority of them. I know some of you guys are listening, going, "I do my homework." And yes, that is true. There are those that do do their homework. But, but people are afraid of of information, and 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 but information. But information is power. And if you have that information, then you can make calculated choices. You can decide, do I want to make that fetish film for, you know, 50 bucks and, you know, have a profit? Or, or do I want to go ahead on my passion and not listen or, or, and obey any of the information that's given to me and make it for so much more and be in a deficit? Now, I will say the exception to that is what I am not a big fan of, but is the auteur, if you will, who is paying for starring, directing, writing their picture, and it's a calling card, and there's another use for it. There's a use for it, but again, uh, that is, I can't speak to that. That's just, that's a personal decision that if you want to, you know, do, that's great, but I would contend that it's better to make a professional um uh, a movie that's a professional triumph, meaning you sold it, and and then have a calling card that never gets sold. Because again, people want to be in business with people who have some kind of track record, even if it's a small track record, right? And uh, it's funny, I mean, I remember uh, Sean Levy uh, in my book, producer of Stranger Things and director of many, many huge movies uh, said, uh, to me that when he was in film school, he went to, um, I think he went to SC. First he went to, I think, Yale, and then he went to SC. And he, anyway, they did their final projects, their final movies in their senior year. And he said, everyone had a movie, you know, and he decided he was gonna make a very little movie, not to try to be the next Scorsese or the next whatever it was, uh, whoever it was the flavor of the month then, not that, not that Marty is a flavor of them. I'm saying that to emulate that great filmmaker. And 
he decided to make a very little feel-good comedy that had a beginning, a middle, and an ending. Not some artistic, you know, let me uh, lay it all out and, and, fail, and fail big. He did that, and one other person did something not too far off. One person, two people got phone calls. He got, with well, his friend, whatever, a classmate, received like four or five calls from agents. He received 47 calls, I believe he said. 47, and no one else received a single call. They all wanted him and they wanted somebody that could tell a very simple story that was very relatable and wasn't overreaching. And I really was always struck by that because it made me think that is what I try to tell film students to do. Don't aspire so high. Now, you could argue if you're a film uh, professor, you know, it's the time to fail, go for it, etc. But uh, I'm you're asking, I'm, in, you're, I'm being interviewed today, so you're getting Kevin's perspective. My perspective is don't waste that opportunity. In other words, seize it and, and be, do, have your cake and eat it too, if you will. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's to totally true. And I'm, and I'm totally on board with you. In fact, I, I, I cite that. I, I go, look at, look at Spielberg's career, how many films he did before he did, you know, his, the, 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 the film that goes back and, 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 and goes through Judaism and, and what happened in World War Two. I mean, he had a long, successful career before he did his artistic film. So I, I'm with you in that they have to make a hard choice, I think, in the beginning. And I'm not the professor that says, go off and do your angst, you know, film. I'm saying, play it smart so you can get invited back to the party. I would always say, I don't really get short films. Uh, first of all, short films at the Academy, I'm a member of the Academy, are my absolute favorite, 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 bar none category, both docs and live action. Uh, and animated, you know, I mean, both live action, animated and docs, short, they're the best. They're just the best. And there's some of the greatest film filmmaking. But if you're going to want to show somebody uh, your skills, in my view, make a full length film. Like if you're going to go for a short, go for a full length film and use that as the calling card. If you can try to get a sale in the process, great. But that's the time to be scrappy as heck and just, you know, put it all out there. And uh, I don't know, I think that that is, to me, a better use of time and energy. I always say, like, when people have personalized license plates, they have too much time on their hands. <laughs> way, way too much. Yeah, and, I, and I'm like, if you're going out and making a movie, make the full movie. Right. Spend your time and energy on the full thing that it can be distributed than, uh, than a short film. There, there's no routlet for it. Right. Exactly. I mean, you can, you can do the circuit route and get, get kudos. I have so many friends who've made shorts. Unless you're doing it as a proof of concept. You know, if you're doing it as a proof of concept to get money for the larger film, that's great. At least you have a motivation on, on why you're doing it. I think that's a reason, exactly. That's a reason to maybe do it. But even that, I would say, you know, like, like uh, when, when, I worked on, um, when I worked on Paranormal Activity, I mean, Paranormal Activity was made, was bought by, uh, by 
by, I believe it was Paramount, could have been DreamWorks at the time, but it was Paramount or DreamWorks, um, by Stacy Snyder, I believe, because they wanted to remake it. And then they tested it at Jason's insistence, Jason Blum's insistence, and they saw how well it did. But still in all, it could have even been better. So they went and reshot this ending and it jacked the scores up significantly. And that was super great. And it was terrifying. And it turns out they used the movie that they were gonna remake. They said, this is the movie, we don't need to remake. And the rest is history there. Well, let's talk about something else that your company does, which is really very, very unique, um, is, is the table script read and the method in which you have figured out the recording of the actors, the reading, the acting, and then, and then, and figuring out from that standpoint, how that's going to materialize uh, in, in monetary acceptance, right? So this was born out of essentially working on so many pilots. ASI over its history has literally done thousands of pilots. And it was a really, I don't know if I can curse on this, effed up. Um, <laughs> it's broadcast, broadcast, gotta keep it clean. <laughs> but it was a messed up, messed up. It was a messed up process, meaning that and I'm talking about the linear stations. I'm talking about CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox. It was some cadence like pilot season, as you know, is whatever, uh, January, February um, of the selections, sometimes a little earlier, but then they cast them in February and March. They shoot them in March and April, and then they test them in April and May, all in an attempt build their, their um, to all in an attempt to build the schedules for the upfronts uh, that were in, um, in June, late May or June, something like that. But again, it had this cadence to it. Now that really doesn't exist by and large as nearly as much as it did, almost not at all. Uh, and the streamers changed that uh, to, because they released throughout the year. So every time and time again, we would get a studio cut of a movie to of a TV series to test. We would test it, and then we would discover that it really had some DNA issues. So most everything tested in the murky middle, I call it, the 70% that's somewhere between the norms and a little bit above, or the norms and a little bit below. Uh, some were stinkers, and they probably could never be helped. And then very rarely did they knock anything out of the park. And you knocked it out of the park, you were kind of golden. You were almost assured a pickup. Very rarely would they not pick up something that tested just through the roof. And from that test, listen to this, they had 36, 24, 36, 48 hours at the max to turn that cut over to the network so the network could then do their test. So it went to the studio and to the network. What can you do in 36 hours, except maybe change some voiceover, maybe trim, couple of minutes out, you're not gonna change the DNA. When you test movies, you do change the DNA quite often, but you have months in between sometimes a screening, certainly weeks, but if not months, so you can reshoot, you can really create change and be very strategic about it. And I saw this time and time again. So I said, why are we not 
doing a screening essentially before the show is shot so that we can give them the best idea of how this is going to perform. Now, granted, you don't get the chemistry maybe of the characters, but you do get, do you care about these characters? Do you invest in them? Is this, does the thing make sense? Does it feel slow? Is the ending working? A lot of confusion changes that can be made. And do that and then make the changes before you shoot a frame of film, then test it, and you would see that you would test higher, that's my theory, which bared out to be true, than you normally would have. And the people that did that, I believe, I can never prove it because they didn't do it without, they'd have to have done two without doing it, two versions. But intuitively and, and anecdotally, I can tell you that the quality for those who did were unanimously better. Yeah, it's really interesting the way you've you've locked that down and and been able to statistically show where some of what you're calling the DNA or the backbone of the pilot where the issues exactly. might lie. Exactly. And what we then And then having the ability to fix those issues before we bring in normally like eight to 10 professional actors. They're usually voiceover actors and they sit in our theaters. We have these theaters that are armed with dials and we have anywhere between 40 to 40, 40 to 48 people uh, that are watching the actors and they're moving their dials as they're listening. Often they put their heads back. It looks like they're sleeping sometimes, sometimes they are, but rarely they are really paying attention. And of course, with the advent of podcasts, people listen a lot now as an audio, as an audio, uh, you know, whole genre has has just uh, come to come to boom is booming so so uh essentially you listen at the end of you fill out a questionnaire then there's a focus group and there's probing and a, a full report is is given within 24 hours and so they have time to do this before they shoot uh and it's and we never like to use the actors that are in it we like to use you know, because it's not, we don't want the pressure, we don't want them to feel the pressure that they may, they'll do that, but they will replace actors, as you know, often, not, not I mean, semi-often, in, uh, in the post-tests, once they do shoot, and for the next episodes, if they're going to pick it up, they may replace an actor. Correct. Reshoot that pilot and then launch it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Who's just not testing that well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because this is, this is a very unique um, way of, uh, yeah, a very unique approach. Now, um, you know, I mean, uh, uh, we could be talking, we could be talking about this for days. <laughs> But Leslie, I just want to say one thing that's important to get is this is all in an attempt to help filmmakers and studios understand, get intel at the earliest stages when big decisions are made. Because you want to be able to have some, inf make informed decisions rather than just instinct. And if you can help it, you're not going to solve all of your problems, but if you can solve a large number of them or the obvious or the obvious big chunks exactly. then you're way exactly. way ahead of the game there's one other thing i want to talk about before you know we kind of wrap this up which is really also a very unique thing you're doing is you're testing the talent 
which of course has been done before, but you're testing the talent and the title. You talk a little bit about that too and how important that is because I, in rhetoric, say this often that people select the wrong titles. Title is so important and talent is so important to distribution. Well, just there are two very different things. First, uh, let me talk about title first. Title, it, no title exists in a vacuum. Okay, so titles, I don't believe there's any really, really bad titles unless they're hurting your, unless they're hurting your uh, people wanting to see it. In other words, um, which is very, very rare. So something that is so antithetical. But like you could say Forrest Gump is a terrible title, right? In isolation, it is. What's, what's a Forrest Gump? Like what's, is it something about a forest? Is it something about a gump? What's a gump? You know, like seriously, that's how we heard that title when it first came out. Uh, and, and, and I said, and, oh, or, or when um, I worked on a movie called Evil Me and uh, they decided to change the title to Despicable Me. And I'm like, that's terrible. Kids won't, I used to just focus groups and the kids would go, Despicable, they couldn't even pronounce it, but it worked in their favor. Or Jumanji. Jumanji wasn't even a word. They created it. Now it's a great title. Was it good then? So the point is nothing really exists in the title in the in in a vacuum. When you when you weigh is if a title is good or not, this is my criteria. If you have to spend ten seconds or more explaining a title in a thirty second commercial, precious really expensive real estate, you got a crappy title. It is not the right title. If you can easily justify it with the action that you're watching and you're advertising, then it's a good title. If it is a title that is generic, that's another, not a kiss of death, but could potentially hurt your chances at the box office or even streaming. Uh, I think of a few that, that just came out that I find very generic uh, that you don't even remember the titles because there could be, any, you know what I mean? They're not, I would rather go for something that's more challenging but is stickier than just a word. Like call it courage. Like what? Like really? Like that, and by the probably, if you look it up, you couldn't even clear it, probably 20 movies named Courage. Uh, but what does that mean, really? And what does that give you? Forrest Gump, once you knew that it was the lead character, which you knew in two seconds when the first person said, hey, Forrest, or, you know, uh, suddenly it was like, oh, that's an interesting name. And you, people got it really quickly. It was very, very interesting. No one's ever heard that name before. So that Aaron Brockovich, same thing, you know. So that that's how I feel about titles. With And you can test the title like this. You say, uh, does it increase your interest to see the movie, decrease your interest, or have no bearing? Most of the time it has no bearing on your interest in seeing the movie. But if it decreases it, that's something to look at because it's not buying you anything. Uh, and so we usually test it what we call monadically, where you either bake it into its own with the concept with 300 people or 400 people being tested, 
and then you do another three or 400 people with another title. But at the end of that, we also sometimes don't put the title in when we just rotate different titles. And so no one sees, the, so that you eliminate the order bias and you just say which one, which one seems to fit mostly. You know, people don't know how to, they're not titled doctors, but they can say something that might intrigue them. Really, it kind of does better for elimination more than it does for selection in some way. And then for a cast, what I find interesting about cast is that if you have three actors you're considering, the filmmaker wants someone who almost no one ever, no one's ever heard of, but they're a marvelous actor. And then the studio is saying, you must put a name in that. And then uh, the, an agent is pushing for a person who has a few credits who would be, so one, one person is $5 million, your star, who's gonna work a month on your movie. One is a person who's going to take 750,000 and one's gonna essentially work at scale plus 10. And you test the concept and then you start laying in the actor and the other elements. We do what we call a sequential lift. So we look at different elements and see how they're, how they're uh, affecting the overall wanna see of this movie or television movies. So instead of just saying, uh, so let's say you test it first with just the concept and it tests really strongly, okay? That is an answer right there. Then you bring in, uh, it's directed by so-and-so, unknown person, doesn't add anything. Doesn't hurt you, doesn't add anything. The title is blah, 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 usually goes down. It actually hurts you. Then you add, and here are here is an actor. And let's say it's the star. It doesn't really add anything. And then you go to the second star, and it adds about the same, maybe a little. And then the no name comes on, and it doesn't hurt you. So in other words, the concept is strong enough in that scenario, when the concept is that strong, and you're seeing almost, almost a, almost a flat line. Thank you. <laughs> you don't need that actor to to spend that five million dollars. That five million dollars is not now. There might be people who say, "Well, yes and no." I mean, you're still going to get publicity from this person, but you wouldn't get with the others. But even in this world today, how much is publicity really buying you anyway? And you know, I'm, it's like a kid, you're expecting the kid, I'm gonna have a child so they'll take care of me when I'm older and then they grow up and you, the kid can't stand the parent, the parent and you just were like, why did I do this? The, the actor could say, I don't like the film, I'm not gonna support the film. So I'm saying it's not a good reason to put a star in if it really isn't going to raise the equation. Now, sometimes there's a really low, I remember an NBC show that we were testing, it was a really low concept and then you added a beloved TV actress and you put her in there and it shot up. But, at the, but wait a minute, but then we said, how much would you see this? And it still was in the toilet. Meaning even that actor couldn't elevate. Does that make sense? So even that actor couldn't, but it was no indictment on the actor. It was indictment on the DNA. They had a huge DNA problem. Um, I am very interested in companies that tell a more complete story. For example, um, biometrics, uh, natural language processing and AI and gaming. Uh, these are all areas that are all sort of really interconnected. I also am very much into culture and I, I'm 
I'm trying to trying to get more involved in what the where the cultural trends are going. And I find that really interesting. Uh, and then in the, the, the pre green light stage is to me, if I could just, I feel like I'm an evangelist for it. You are an evangelist for this. I mean, you really are a forerunner in this. I can't even tell you. I mean, I've been preaching this for the last like 15 years. So that, that this was needed. Um, and to be able to to have it facilitated on on a company end is just miraculous. So yeah, I think you're. I think in that space you got a lot more to do. Well, and I want to say for those listeners who can't afford research, and many independent filmmakers cannot. That doesn't mean that does not mean you don't do it. In other words, put your own panel together, get two hundred people, hopefully not your friends, and do a concept test. Do a few of them. Rotate them. Uh, and the concept should be maybe no more than two to 300 words, paragraph, really saying what this thing is. And if you can't say it in that, you got a problem also because it has to be succinct enough, but you want to give enough detail to get a sense of what it is. And then don't put any hyperbole in it, in this extraordinarily funny comedy. No, in this comedy, there's a, because you don't want to hype it. And then you want to ask follow-up questions. What if we had this, would it increase your interest? What if we had this element? What if we had this element? And then you'll see if that really adds to the equation or not. But that's an example of something you can do on your own pretty easily. Same as when you have a finished movie and you want to test it. If you cannot afford a full-on Screen Engine ASI test, test it yourself with, test it with, um, with a group of people in your circle um, who are going to first give you feedback. It could be more critical than it would normally be. I'm not a huge fan of family and friends screening, but then try to put together more strangers. You may have to offer them like a, maybe a free movie ticket or something like that to come and do it. But you can, you can rent a theater, do it on a much cheaper basis, get your local, at your university, maybe they could give you the theater. A lot of people like to help alums out at the different, um, you know, film schools, but do it and learn and listen. That's the best advice I can give to that young filmmaker who is afraid or using the excuse of I can't afford it or I don't care what the audience has to say. That's just that's just small minded. And it's it's, and it's not the art form. If you're a painter, you don't have to share it. You can put it in the back of your closet. You're a novelist. You don't like it, put in the back of your drawer. But if you're making a movie, it requires many craftspeople, many artists. It's the nature of what we do. We're sharing it with a group of people, with an audience. And you want to make sure the audience is just satisfied in the right way. And there's practical implications for that. There is an absolute correlation between how people are going to talk about it, recommend it, evangelize it, passionately advocate for it, or not not. And if you can know that and get your movie to be more embraced by your word of mouth, you're going to potentially have a success. Perfect. Thank you, Kevin Getz, for joining me on Best and Fest. Uh, shout out uh, your socials, how they can get a hold of you, your company, and your podcast so that they can um, swing on over and listen to some of what you do. Oh, I'd love people. I'd love people listening. 
uh, to my podcast, Don't Kill the Messenger, but also the um, my website is Kevin Getz, G-O-E-T-Z, G-O-E-T-Z, 360.com. Uh, and uh, thank you, Leslie, for your uh, wonderful um, interview. And uh, I wish you tons of luck as well. Thank you. Well, we'll keep in touch for sure. Um, and for those that want to learn more about uh, market research and what his uh, company offers, Screen Engine ASI um, is where you need to go to get there. So thank you so much uh, for those listening. And the, the video component can be found on the LaFemme uh, YouTube channel of this podcast. Don't forget to like us and share us and pass us on to all your friends and your filmmakers out there. Thank you so much, Kevin Getz, for joining me on Best in Fest. Best in Fest.